The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D. from Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington. If you'd like to join in the discussion, email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm or call into the program with your questions. Now, here's your host, Rev. Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. And I want to thank all of you who are listening with us today. We're uh, glad that you're joining us. I know we have listeners across the U.S., uh, Canada, and Ireland, and New Zealand sometimes. And we're just so glad to know that you are listening. We love hearing from you on the email and on Facebook. And so uh, thanks for Letting us know that Spirit of Recovery is touching your life, and thank you for participating. Do visit us on Facebook and post on our wall or join in the discussion. We also uh, thank you very much for letting your friends and the people that you know in your recovery community and in your unity community know about Spirit of Recovery. It's great to be broadcasting on the topic of recovery on Unity Online Radio, and I'm glad to know that we're touching your heart. Today we have another great topic, it's science and spirituality, what researchers have to say. We're going to be talking in a moment with my guest, Dr. Val Slaymaker, who is uh, doing research on spirituality and recovery, and we're going to find out some interesting and surprising things that uh, scientists are finding out about the importance of spirituality. Every week we talk about topics that are important to the recovery community and we have guests who are down to earth, who are knowledgeable and innovative. And our guests are people who are either in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people. People that bring you spiritual insights that have uh, something to share with you about how spirituality and recovery go together. We're always bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. The spirit of recovery is a welcoming place. Recovery is a large tent, and so if you're a person who's in recovery from any kind of addiction or if you're a family member that's in your own recovery as a family member or you're a family member or friend of somebody that's got the disease of addiction or if you're simply looking uh, for more information about the process of recovery, you're just curious, we welcome you and we welcome your participation in our discussions. Again, my name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your Spirit of Recovery host. I'm a Unity minister and a trained addictions counselor. 
Also, I'm a person who has in my circle of love and friendship many people with the disease of addiction. And 30 years ago, those relationships got me started on an active path of recovery as a family member and got me going on my personal growth and my spiritual development. And ever since then, my walk has been an integration of unity principles and recovery principles. And uh, that's really made my life uh, something wonderful. And I'm very grateful and delighted to have the opportunity to share these ideas with you and to hear what you're experiencing in your spirituality and recovery. On every show, we do have a drawing, and we give away a recovery book. And these books have been donated to us by the nonprofit Hazelden Foundation, and that's www.hazelden.org. And thank you very much to Hazelden for donating these books. And today's book is a classic. It's the book 24 Hours a Day, um, which is uh, one of the meditation books that got it all started, or probably the meditation book that got all the meditation books started. It's a classic of spirituality. It's often used by people in Alcoholics Anonymous as a daily reader, and it's wonderful for anybody that's on a spiritual path. So uh, we'd be happy to... Put your name in the drawing for that book. If you send us an email or if you give us a call during this show, we'll put your name in the drawing for the 24-hour-a-day book. Our phone number is 888-558-UNITY, or let me do that again, 888-558-6489. And our email is spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. And we do get those emails during the show. Today we are talking about the topic, science and spirituality, what researchers have to say. Joining me is my guest, Dr. Valerie Slaymaker, um, who is the Chief Academic Officer and the Provost of the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies, and that's a world-class provider of graduate-level counselor preparation. And Val also serves as the Executive Director of Hazelden's Butler Center for Research, and she presents research results at regional and national conferences and publishes in scholarly journals and books. She holds a doctorate and master's degree in clinical psychology, and she's also trained as a scientist practitioner, so she's also a licensed psychologist. Dr. Slaymaker's scholarly and research interests include addictions treatment research, academic program evaluation, and the implementation of evidence-based practices into clinical programming. She has a a wonderful down-to-earth approach, and the research that she does benefits people directly that are in recovery. She's going to be telling us today about a study that she has been conducting since 2008, a very fascinating study about the role of spirituality um, and recovery. And she's going to start off by telling us um, some background about research um, in the addictions field. So Val, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Really glad you're with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Anna. It's my delight to be here. Well, you know a lot about uh, the status of spirituality in addictions research. There's been really a lot of that over the years. Um, Could you tell us how that's gone and why scientists are interested in studying recovery and what they've been doing over the years? Oh, you bet, Anna. And it's a, a very wonderful development in the field of science. You know, if you go back and review the scientific literature, you'll find that scientists have actually been studying addiction itself and its treatment for decades. 
some of the science dates back to the 1960s and the 1970s, for example, ranging on topics of um, trying to describe what the course of the disease might be or research on the biological mechanisms, if you will, of alcoholism and drug dependence even early studies on the genetics of the disease, and even dating back to the 1960s, some very early treatment evaluation reports as people were trying to get the word out that this is an illness and it can be treated. And what happened then was as AA continued to spread and more and more people began to find health, healing, and recovery via AA, scientists start to get wind of this phenomenon, if you will, and started to take some attention and give some research attention to studying AA itself. And probably the biggest push of activity when it came to studying AA in general in science really happened with a flurry of activity, I'd say ranging from the late 1980s through the 1990s. And only more recently have we as a group of scientists really began to start paying attention to the role of spirituality specifically to describe how AA works. Mm -hmm. What were some of the things that the other researchers have found out about AA over the years? Well, you know, that's a great... Yeah, you bet. That's a great question, and and part of me is somewhat chagrined to say this, but what we found is that AA does work, and you might kind of laugh and chuckle, and some of the listeners might chuckle at that, because this kind of falls into that category of research that I that I would call, well, we could have told you that, you know, category of research. You know, no doubt many of us, when we're exposed to the popular media or the news, come across a research finding that we think, well, gosh, that seems pretty obvious. And and likewise, it's obvious to millions of people who found help in AA that AA is really effective and it does work. But we have to keep in mind that even though this finding that it works, first of all, might seem pretty evident to us, it's a good thing we've had science document it. Because when science documents a finding, first it confirms that it's true And we can use the scientific data, certainly, to respond to critiques or skepticism that we might find related to AA in particular. And it's also a good thing because, you know, research generates more research. It generates more research funding and more advanced findings. So overall, it's a wonderful thing that scientists have documented that AA works because it gives AA the legitimacy, you know, frankly, that it really deserves. So what happened was there was so much activity in the 80s and 90s that several researchers were able to compile all of the studies. They took almost 180 really well-done studies and analyzed the analyses, a a meta-analysis, if you will, and they found just that, that there's a, a phenomenal positive relationship between AA involvement and youth and psychosocial outcomes. Now, that might sound like a bit of a mouthful, um, and you might wonder, okay, Val, you know, why don't you say AA causes good outcome? And there's a very good reason for that, Anna. The research that is required to demonstrate a cause would be a randomized clinical trial, and it's unethical to randomize people to AA or to not go to AA, Because one of the most wonderful things about it, of course, is that it's free and available to anyone with a desire to stop drinking. 
So instead we say that there's a positive relationship. But this problem aside, we do have a variety of studies that demonstrate that it does very much positively impact and predict better outcome and recovery. Right. What are some of the things that scientists have found make AA work? Why does it work? Oh, you bet. You know, in fact, after they demonstrated, okay, it's really, really obvious this works and it's related to positive outcome, they went back and they started asking themselves, well, you know, what would be AA's mechanisms of action or its effective ingredients, if you will? And that's that's what you're getting at with that question. And it's interesting, Anna, because science has found, in essence, that AA works via two primary mechanisms. It works by increasing self-efficacy and by changing the social support networks. Right. What does self-efficacy mean? You bet. You bet. Now, self-efficacy is kind of this interesting, I want to say, let's call it a psychological construct, if you will. And in essence, it refers to the confidence that an individual has that they can either refrain from drinking or using or even the confidence that they have that they can work an active program of recovery. And we had a couple of really great studies in particular that examined over a 1,000 different patients seeking treatment for addiction in a variety of different programs. And the researchers found consistently that among those who went to AA after treatment, AA specifically predicted an increase in the self-efficacy to remain in recovery and to work a recovery program And that self-efficacy, in turn, drove continuous abstinence. So they found, again, kind of that that linear transformation, if you will, AA, improved self-efficacy, better outcome, better recovery, better quality of life. Right. And you said that the social support network part of AA is also really important. Did did anybody uh, give any details about that, the sense of going to meetings or sponsors or... Anything? Oh, you bet. You bet. There's also been a variety of research, some of that I've been involved with, with colleagues here at Hazelden, and this was really interesting, too. It's kind of research that helps us pinpoint or isolate those effective ingredients, if you will, and via a variety of predictive analyses, and that's a specific type of statistical procedure that allows us to isolate the effect. We have found in studies of over 700 people Um, ours at Hazelden and and studies that others have conducted, that those who attend AA regularly and really connect with AA end up completely changing their social support networks. And they change, not surprisingly, their social support networks change from, you know, those in which uh, there's a lot of drinking, a lot of drug use, very little support for abstinence, to a new social network, a new system of social support that surrounds the individual with positivity, with um, dedication to recovery, with commitment to health. And it's that, again, also another linear path where AA attendance predicts positive changes in the social support network, and those positive changes in the social support network predict ongoing abstinence and recovery. 
Right. It's uh, always interesting to me to see how the the early members of Alcoholics Anonymous, as as you you know, from reading the the book Alcoholics Anonymous or the big book, how the things that they seem to know by observation or intuition are being confirmed now by science. Exactly. You know, I like to say that Bill W. and Dr. Bob were on to something, obviously, as millions of people who've benefited from AA could really attest. And as I mentioned earlier, it's important that we're getting, as you mentioned too, the scientific confirmation because it gives it the legitimacy that, that it deserves. Right. Yeah, it highlights it uh, so that... In today's world, where we are so keyed into that, to the scientific facts that people can can say, yeah, they they've showed that they've showed that the, that it works. That those are that those are indeed the facts. It is so. exactly when we work right. with patients. You know, when we work with patients here at Hazelden, we work very hardly, or you know, work very hard to um, really help them understand that connection with AA is going to be critical for their ongoing success. And with data such as these, studies such as these, we can say to them, look, we don't just make this up. You know, there's a real reason why this is going to really improve your life in the long term. Right. And I know that um, now Hazelden, and as well as many other treatment programs, I believe, are starting to do uh, more more follow-up with patients after treatment, in addition to certainly uh, very much encouraging them to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. They're also doing mentoring programs or the coaching programs or that type of thing, I believe, even online or in person. Exactly. It's all about surrounding the individual with the support that they need to continue working that, that program of recovery. And the outcomes data and evaluation systems that are in place at Hazelden and elsewhere are also starting to, in addition to ask about AA attendance, we're starting to dive more deeply, too, into spirituality, because spirituality Uh is yet another active ingredient, if you will, um, an angle, if you will, from which we can also understand how AA works. Right, and that's what's the new part really isn't it is is in addition to those things that are maybe a a little maybe a little bit easier to measure but starting to delve into that area that's probably pretty pretty tough to get your hands around that spirituality in terms of measuring it Mm -hmm. oh you've got that right Anna you definitely do and and really this area of research which is going into the spirituality side of AA and trying to understand spirituality really got kicked off to a really great start by one of my colleagues out in the San Francisco Bay Area. And her name is Dr. Leanne Cascudis. She's mm-hmm. with the Alcohol Research Group there, and she published a study several years ago. In fact, I want to say in 2003, really, as I mentioned, kick-started it all. And it was such an interesting study, Anna. Um, what she did was she followed nearly 600 people in treatment over the course of three years. Now, that's quite an undertaking as a researcher. Right. We're going to have to take a break right now, but we hold that thought. We're going to come back to that. This is a very fascinating study. Uh, thank you, you so much, Val. Uh, when we come back, we'll get started with the Serenity Minute, a brief moment to focus on a constructive thought, and then my guests, Dr. Valerie Slaymaker, and I will keep talking about science and spirituality, what research has to say. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We'd like to take a moment to encourage you, as part of our Unity Online radio family of listeners, to support this ministry through a love offering. 
For your convenience, you can make one-time or recurring monthly donations. Go to www.unity.fm and click on Donate Now. Thank you for your support. Do you sometimes feel as though the door to happiness has closed and there's no other door in sight? In her book, Ask Yourself This, Unity Minister Wendy Craig Purcell reminds us that Everything happens for a reason. We've all experienced situations which felt like anything but good. We may have lost our job or gone through a divorce or experienced some other dark night of the soul. Yet those very experiences, when met spiritually, can lead us to a much greater good. The lost job can be what finally motivates us to discover the work that truly feeds our soul. The ending of a marriage can trigger us to do the emotional healing and personal growth work we've been avoiding for years. Every one of us can look back at negative or painful experiences in our lives and say that they turned out to be the best, worst things that ever happened to us. For more insight from Wendy Craig Purcell, read Ask Yourself This from Unity House Books. If you're focused on getting the right answers, Ask Yourself This emphasizes the importance of asking the right questions. Order your copy today at www.unity.org. Do you think you know all you want to know about characters in the Bible? Do you know who could be called the king who loved too much? Or what it means to be a Jezebel? Or that the best love story in the Bible begins with the declared commitment of two women? The Bible's symbolic meaning can help you transform your life and discover the presence and power of God within you. Find out what these characters can teach you about your own life today by tuning into Biblical Power for Your Life. Each week, co-hosts Reverends Karen Tudor and E.J. Niles present a Bible character from an historical, cultural, psychological, and symbolic perspective. Your comments and questions are part of the lively discussion. Tune in every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, and power up your life. Only at Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. If you'd like to share your questions, comments, and experience with today's topics, call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. We're really glad that you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, our topic is science and spirituality, what researchers have to say. And my guest is Dr. Valerie Slaymaker, and she is the Chief Academic Officer and Provost of the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies, and she's also the Executive Director of Hazelden's Butler Center for Research. And she is telling us about the research that is going on in uh, spirituality and recovery, and she's telling us some background, and then uh, just in a few moments, she's going to tell us uh, about what 
a study that she's actually conducting, which is fascinating, and uh, you'll hear all about it. But first, let's take a moment to relax and focus on a constructive idea in the Serenity Minute. So I invite you to hear this idea. I focus on my spiritual growth, and my life gets better. I focus on my spiritual growth, and my life gets better. Thank you for joining me in the Serenity Minute. I hope you found that to be refreshing and um, getting you focused on your spirituality. And now we're back with my guest, Dr. Valerie Slaymaker, and we're talking about science and spirituality, what researchers have to say. And Valerie um, is a, a researcher herself, and so she's filling us in on some background on on research on spirituality and recovery, and then she's also going to be telling us a little later about the research that she's actually conducting in this area. This is a great time to give us a call or send us an email. If you've got a comment or a question for Valerie, she'd love to address that. Our phone number is 888-55-UNITY, and our email is spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. And we do get those emails during this show, so we'd be happy to take your comments or questions. And also, we'd like to put your name in the drawing for our giveaway book donated to us by Hazelden Foundation. And that giveaway book is the classic meditation book, 24 hours a day. So, Val, before the break, you were telling us about a study conducted by a colleague of yours um, in California. So, um, fill us in on that. What did she, and I think I believe it's she. What did she find out? Oh, you bet. This was Dr. Leanne Cascudis, and it was probably one of the first big published studies focusing specifically on spirituality in AA. And what she did, she followed nearly 600 people who had entered treatment for alcoholism, and she followed them over the course of three years, which is quite an undertaking when it comes to research. I I know myself firsthand. It's hard to keep track of people that long, but it was a beautiful study. And Anna, what she found, frankly, was really, really interesting, and it created a lot of talk in the scientific community. So what she found was this, in essence she found that those individuals that had a spiritual awakening by year three, so that's three years after finishing treatment, had the highest odds or likelihood of continuous sobriety during that time period. And what's interesting, too, is that it didn't matter how the participants defined themselves or defined their spirituality, you know, whether they considered themselves religious or spiritual, agnostic, or even unsure. It really did not matter. And what's also really interesting about her study, Anna, is that she found that for most people, the true spiritual awakening happens later in their recovery, around about the three-year mark. And in fact, she said that, and she found in her analyses, that only about 5% had a spiritual awakening that first year in recovery, and that went up to about 12% in year two. But in year three... 40% of the people who remained abstinent had had a spiritual awakening, and only 20% of those um, um, who were not had a spiritual awakening. How did she define spiritual awakening? 
You know, that's a very, very good question. She used a variety of measures. You know, we have um, measures out there called the Alcoholics Anonymous Involvement Scale. We have the Alcoholics Anonymous Affiliation Scale. And I'm going to page through the manuscript here just to get a sense, too, of how she did that. Um, it's very hard, as you alluded to earlier, to actually measure spiritual awakening. Um, but they ask a flat-out question, you know, first and foremost, something as simple as, have you had a spiritual awakening as a result of your involvement in AA? And they, you know, use that as a dichotomous variable, if you will, a yes or a no. They also, as I mentioned, use those AA affiliation scales, and they used a um, single item to try to understand how the individuals characterize themselves in terms of their spirituality. It was pretty you know, pretty simple, not very glamorous, but what's interesting is that she found such a strong effect for spiritual awakening on ongoing continuous abstinence across the three-year period. Yeah, fascinating. Are there any more studies uh, earlier than that uh, studied uh, spirituality and recovery? Well, there are some that certainly have come after it because Lee's work really spurred a lot of interest in trying to get a hold of what this was, particularly since her analysis was really just an initial one with with the crudest of measures, if you will. So we've had additional studies that have happened since then that have examined, for example, um, what happens to spirituality during the progression of the illness. You know, it's not surprising, I'm sure to a lot of people, that as the illness becomes more severe, as alcoholism and drug addiction becomes more severe, spirituality levels plummet and, and really and truly decline. There's also been a very interesting study by Dr. Sarah Zemore, and she set out to try to understand, well, what happens first? Is it abstinence that happens first, then spiritual change or is it spiritual change that has to happen first and then abstinence occurs? You know, that kind of classic chicken and the egg question, if you will. Right. Sure. And, and so she set out and tried to understand which came first, and she did a series of predictive analyses again. And it's a start. You know, the answer probably to the chicken and egg question here is that it's some combination of the both, right? That there's some combination of initial abstinence, attending AA that creates this upward spiral of health and recovery. But she found that AA involvement specifically predicted improved spirituality, deepened spirituality, positive spiritual change, and that spiritual change in turn independently predicts abstinence. It was a beautiful study to try and, try and map out that flow, if you will. Right. Now, I know scientists also, in addition to studying spirituality in AA, are beginning to look at it in the professional treatment context, like what happens when a person goes to a 28-day treatment or an outpatient treatment. Is spirituality part of that? Oh, you bet. You bet. In fact, there was a, a really good study done on patients seeking residential care, as you described, by Sterling and colleagues. And it was interesting. They They found that 
individuals who came to treatment had very positive changes in their spirituality from treatment entry to the time of treatment discharge. And that was certainly very good to see because that's certainly a hope of all of ours that are in, in the treatment center world. We want to see these positive changes happen for people. But he also followed people three months after treatment and assessed whether they had been abstinent or not. And he was able to divide them into two groups, you know, one group that maintained their sobriety for those three months and a group that had not. And what he found was probably not surprising to many of us, but the groups really differed in terms of spiritual experiences. So by the three-month point when he contacted them, those who had relapsed had significantly dropped scores, even lower spirituality scores than what they came into treatment with. And those who had stayed abstinent had higher scores, even higher than what they had discharged treatment with. So the people who remained abstinent continued to have this beautiful upward trajectory in terms of the deepening of their spirituality. And the individuals who had relapsed had dropped even lower than they were from the outset. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Very, very interesting. What about... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say there's also other research that has examined people in treatment and has found that spirituality positively predicts how many steps are worked of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's research that suggests, too, that spiritual change can predict the quality of recovery. And in this case, the quality of recovery would be um, defined as kind of the degree of inner peace, if you will, that someone's experiencing or the quality of life they're experiencing, the quality of their relationships and and other factors. Mm -hmm. Wow. So we know that you've got a study that's been underway for a few years. Uh, Tell us about that, how you decided to do it and what you're doing. Oh, I'm, I'm very excited to tell you about it. The study I have underway at this point at Hazelden is called Spiritual Transformation in Recovery. And this is a large-scale study, and we've enrolled just over 200 people who have entered treatment at Hazelden. And really, we're out to really understand, just as the title suggests, what happens to individuals during the course of recovery and how does that influence their recovery outcomes. Now, I set out um, this idea when um, talking with my colleagues here at Hazelden, I really came to understand the kind of the intellectual beauty that's behind the chapter, how it works in the big book. Mm -hmm. You know, when you read that chapter, it's just beautiful. You know, in the scientific world, we say that any good theory is one that's testable. And when I read how it works in the big book, I see Bill W., Dr. Bob, and their contemporaries outlining this beautiful, almost linear theory of spiritual change and transformation. As I read it, and as I did read it, I became just really excited realizing, you know, again, these guys are on to something. We can test this. We can see what's really going on. And when you dive into the heart of that chapter, it really talks about a spiritual malady as being the root or underlying alcohol and and drug dependence. And they identify a couple of really key factors. The first is the role of resentment. In fact, I believe they say that resentment is the number one offender. And they also identify selfishness or self-centeredness 
as the root of spiritual disease being at the heart of this condition. So I decided I'm going to test this, and I set out to do just that. I've actually designed a what's called a path analytic model, where I have included variables related to an individual's connection with a higher power. I've assessed and measured their levels of self-centeredness and selfishness, self-will, if you will. I've included resentment, of course, and the flip side of resentment, many would say, is gratitude. So I'm measuring gratitude. I'm also including meaning and purpose and also negative mood, sadness, anger. And I'm looking at how all of these different factors combine and how they might change during treatment and how that during treatment change might drive abstinence in the long term. How have you uh, measured self-centeredness? Now that was a challenge, and I have to tell you, when I went out to start looking for known validated instruments of self-centeredness, I was somewhat dismayed to find that there were none. So what I did was first, I tried to find the closest proxy measure that I possibly could. And I did find a measure called the Narcissistic Personality Inventory. Of course, narcissism is close to self-centeredness, but it's not entirely capturing everything I needed to. You know, when you think about narcissism, it's a pathological version of self-centeredness that's really taken toward the extreme. But there are other types of, of insidious, you know, types of self-centeredness that I think cause people problems in the course of their daily recoveries that isn't necessarily to that extreme. You know, for example, just a missing an opportunity to think of someone else or automatically jumping to a conclusion that is self-based versus understanding that uh, something may be out of one's control. So I had to devise some pretty simple measures of my own trying to get a sense of, you know, how often does this individual, you know, tend to think of others in given situations other than themselves. Right. Could you give us an example of a question? Because I'm assuming you these were paper and pencil questions or an interviewer or something sure. asking. Sure, sure. In fact, now you, I launched this study a while ago, so now you're you're asking my memory to follow through <laughs> on me here. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Let me see. I'm gonna. I have my stack of measures actually right here because I'm in the middle of of looking through some of my data. So let me see if I can page through and find that. But you know, okay. overall, as I'm as I'm looking here, you know, the whole concept of measurement is a real challenge, Anna. Because, as I mentioned, there aren't a whole lot of measures that are really out there that you can use um, to really to really get a sense of what's what's going on. Okay, so here's what I right. here's a couple of things that I've done. Okay, um, I've also included some items um, related to kind of a hypersensitivity as well, because that can be kind of a psychological construct relative to self-centeredness. So I might ask, or I have asked, for example, the item, and I ask people to rate how characteristic these items are of them. And some of these come from actually a hypersensitive narcissism scale that I also found, but I've also modified them to some degree. But for example, I might ask people how often they tend to take the things other people say personally, or how often their feelings are hurt, or if they would describe themselves as an individual who's easily hurt by the slightest remarks of other people, or how often they tend to get absorbed into thinking about their own personal problems, their own health, their, their own relationships, 
or how wrapped up they tend to get in their own interests to the point of even forgetting about the interests of others. We'll also ask from the more from the narcissistic side, you know, the degree to which people like to be the center of attention or that they believe that they're particularly special and in this case more special than other people or if they have a sense that they really like to be recognized when they walk into a room or that they have this sense of authority or a sense that perhaps they're more capable than others. Mm-hmm. Good questions. Interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah. And you said you also measured mood. Um, is that accurate? You measured how people, if they were feeling positive or negative, that type of thing as well? That's right. There are a variety mm-hmm. of instruments out there that are very effective in assessing mood, sadness, anxiety as well, but in this case, mainly I was going after what's known or what's called negative affect. So it's the sense of feeling very sad, very down, a sense of hopelessness, a sense of feeling depressed or as if life is lacking a sense of meaning and purpose. And I included that measurement because, again, it's the flip side of what you would expect now to happen in the theory as it's outlined in the chapter, How It Works. Right. It's time for another break. So, uh, Val, thanks so much. This is fascinating. And thanks to all our listeners for being out there with us today. We're glad you're here on Spirit of Recovery. Glad you're listening. And uh, we're going to be right back. So stay with us. Unity has designated 2011 as the Year of Abundant Living and has created a resource library to support you as you embrace your abundance. Hi, This is Reverend Robin Ryder, Senior Minister of Sacred Abundance Ministries and host of Sacred Abundance on Unity Online Radio. Are you looking for abundance in your finances, health, or relationships? Unity's resource library has a variety of tools to support you. Affirmations, articles, podcasts, books, and more. Everything you need to live your life abundantly. Join Unity for this year-long journey of abundance. Go to www.unity.org and click on the Abundant Living Resource Center. And of course, you can also tune in each week for my program, Sacred Abundance, as we learn and apply the essential spiritual principles to our real-world experiences. Join me on Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Central Time, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Someone once said that inspiration feeds the soul. Hi, I'm Jamie Sanders, host of Spirituality Today here on the Unity FM radio network. Each week, we bring you pure inspiration, empowerment, and insight. Join us as we talk with best-selling authors, celebrities, and some of the most dynamic teachers in new thought and motivation in the world today. Spirituality Today is Unity FM spiritual book club and a whole lot more. Be sure to listen in and open up to the wonder and beauty of all that spirit is in and through you. Spirituality Today with Jamie Sanders every Wednesday at noon Pacific Standard Time, 2 p.m. Central, 3 p.m. Eastern, right here on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. You've been listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D. If you have a question, comment, or experience with today's topic you'd like to share, 
Call us now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unity.fm. We now return to Spirit of Recovery. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. I'm really glad that you're with us today. And if you're just joining us, our topic is science and spirituality, what researchers have to say. And my guest is Dr. Valerie Slaymaker. She's the Chief Academic Officer and Provost of the Hazelden Graduate School of Addiction Studies. And she's also the Executive Director of Hazelden's Butler Center for Research. And she is sharing with us some fascinating findings um, in the area of uh, addiction recovery and what scientists have found out about uh, why AA works, about why spirituality is important. And she's telling us now about a study that she herself is in the very midst of conducting. And um, that study is about uh, about spiritual transformation and recovery. So, Val, tell us, what is it that you're hoping to learn from the study? Oh, it's so exciting, and I cannot wait to have all of the data in and start really analyzing them in earnest Anna, but here's what we're really hoping to find. You know, we talked about the role of resentment and spirituality um, in recovery, and I'm hoping you're still there. Yes, I'm still here. Okay, good. I'm sorry. My phone suddenly did something bizarre. (laughs) But what we're trying to find out is, you know, what's the extent of change in these constructs? How does resentment change? How does self-centeredness change? And on the flip side, then, how does that um, pave the way for gratitude to grow and spirituality to develop? And for whom do these constructs change and when? And Especially, I want to know, can I understand and use these changes to predict who's going to do really well in terms of their recovery and their abstinence and their quality of life after treatment? Because if we can identify those individuals, we can surround them with additional support and and additional treatment interventions at the very outset. It's really all about, you know, for us and the research that we do here about improving lives and alleviating suffering. Right. When um, will you have the study completed and be ready to write it up, analyze the data, and what? And then what happens? You bet. We are just finishing the one-year follow-up data so that I can run some of those predictive analyses on outcome in the year after treatment. And I hope to have a manuscript prepared and submitted for publication in a peer-reviewed scientific journal by the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Great. I know we mentioned earlier that it's it's very difficult to study spirituality. It seems like it's so non-concrete, but when you're studying something, you've got to make it, you've got to ask specific questions, you've got to have specific observations. So what are the challenges that you run into studying spirituality? Oh, you, you've nailed it, um, Anna. It really is a challenge. In fact, I often think of it and recall the movie, The Sound of Music. You know, do you remember the scene where the nuns were singing about Maria and how she was such a challenge to understand? Mm-hmm. You know, she mm-hmm. de- they described trying to understand Maria as trying to catch a cloud and pin it down. And that certainly, for me, describes how challenging it is from a scientific perspective to understand and measure spirituality. Even the constructs like self-centeredness that we were just talking about a moment ago are difficult enough as it is, and you can imagine trying to get a sense of a spiritual connection with a higher power. You know, if you were to ask you know, 10 different people to describe what spirituality meant to them, you're going to get 10 different answers, ranging anywhere from 
a continuum of formal religious practices all the way over to the highly metaphysical. So to that end, some science has been conducted to try and create validated instruments. There's a variety out there now that are available to us, and some that I've included in my study, including one called the um, the scale of religious and spiritual coping. There's one out there about daily spiritual experiences. Um, there's others out there assessing meaning in life. And I can give you an example of some of those items if you're interested. Sure. That'd be great. Okay. Okay. So when, when we're interested in trying to understand um, how an individual is feeling in terms of their relationship in the universe, one of the measures from the religious and spiritual coping scale says I think about how my life is part of a larger spiritual force. And the response scale ranges from, you know, a great deal, quite a bit, somewhat, or not at all. And to try to get a sense of whether or not an individual tends to engage in what would be considered negative coping, one of the items asks, I wonder whether God has abandoned me. And that helps us understand what is their relationship with a God of their understanding. Um, One of my favorite scales is the Daily Spiritual Experiences Scale, um, because this, to me, taps into some of the constructs related to Step 11 and maintaining daily conscious contact with a higher power. And this scale has items such as, I feel God's presence. In the response scale, we ask people to indicate how often do they feel God's presence. Is that something that they experience multiple times a day? Is it once a day, most days, you know, once in a while or, or never? And on a similar scale, we might ask, you know, ask them to rate how often the following statement is true of them. I am spiritually touched by the beauty of creation. And you can see that that item is getting a sense of kind of an awareness and a wonderment about the world around us. So those are some examples from the daily spiritual experiences scale. And when it comes to meaning and purpose, this is really important when it comes to spirituality. And I could do probably an entire research study alone trying to understand if meaning and purpose drives spirituality or if spirituality drives meaning and purpose. There's one thing that we know, they're very closely related. And so uh, an an item related to meaning and purpose on the purpose in life scale, for example, might be my spiritual beliefs give meaning to my life's joys and sorrows. And you can see that that's tapping how an individual understands and gives meaning uh, to life's up and downs. And another item includes You know, when I'm disconnected from the spiritual dimension of my life, I lose my sense of purpose. Again, trying to get at that particular connection. So there's a lot out there, thankfully, that we can use to understand this very complex phenomenon. Right. And and obviously you're making... um asking their people people there about spirituality as, in some sense, distinct from religion. I'm just curious if you've if you do or don't use any scales that measure measure religion and if, if you find any differences or not or how religious a person is or how you see that in mm-hmm. terms of research. 
Very good question, Anna, and you're right. The scientific community does make a distinction between religious beliefs and practices and on the one hand and spirituality on the other. Of course, not to imply that they're two distinct phenomenon, but really just to recognize that they are unique in some respects. So to this end, we'll include a religious beliefs and practices scale, which I've included in my spirituality study as well, but also these other broader dimensions of spirituality. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in my particular research to see, you know, for example, how related are the two constructs? Are they independent of each other? Do they change at all during the course of time? And do they change in similar directions? So stay tuned on that one. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm I'm definitely going to be on the lookout to see what you found out about that for sure. That's fascinating. Thank you. I know there yeah, there are lots of things that people could read if they want to learn more about this and uh could you tell us some of those and then I will paste it on the Spirit of Recovery Facebook page so that people can um I'll post it on there so that that people can find it. But what are some things people could read to follow up with what you've been telling us about? Oh, you bet, you bet. You know, probably one of the single best summaries of spirituality research when it comes to recovery is a fantastic chapter written by um, a, a researcher named Connors and his colleagues, and it's titled Spiritual Change in Recovery. And it's actually a book chapter in a larger textbook called Recent Developments in Alcoholism, that was edited by Galanter and Cascudis, and I was mentioning some of her spirituality research just a moment ago. It's a wonderful chapter. For your listeners, many of them would be able to find it by contacting their local academic library, for example, at a local college or university. I'm sure the individuals there would be very happy to help them locate the textbook, make a photocopy, and in some cases, if you contact them, they may even be able to send it electronically. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, that's wonderful. What are you predicting um, in, your, in uh, the results of your study? What are your hypotheses? Oh, you bet. Well, the first thing I'm, I'm predicting is that spiritual change will happen in the desired direction during the course of treatment. So I've assessed people when they first got here, again at the end of treatment, and I also threw a mid-treatment assessment in there to get a sense of how these spiritual practices change. I have done some initial analyses on during treatment change, and I'm pleased to say that there have been significant and positive increases in all of these constructs. There's been dramatic reductions in the levels of self-centeredness and the narcissistic personality inventory, for example, and dramatic increases in gratitude, forgiveness, you know, I forgot to mention that. I also included forgiveness as an element of spirituality. Um, it's just been beautiful to see that everything is working the way I expected it to. The big question now, of course, is to answer the huge hypothesis of whether these changes are driving abstinence at the follow-up and then specifically go back once I have all of the one-year data in to test my model to see if the, that linear path outlined in the chapter, how it works, actually plays out in the data. Mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you a, an impossible question here, and that is if you, if you, think, if you could uh, have a conversation with Bill Wilson and Dr. Bob Smith right now, what do you think they'd say about all this? Oh, my goodness. You know, because they were such innovative pioneers and because their hearts were in the right places, 
I like to believe that they would be absolutely thrilled that their work had endured, that it was helping so many, and it was driving people like myself just to learn more and to give it ongoing legitimacy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure because, as you said, they were pioneers and and uh, people that were fascinated with what's possible, and I'm I'm sure they would. I think they'd be first in line uh, to be. Uh, interested in what you're doing and to be uh, glad for it and and to probably say, I told you so. Exactly. Although I'd probably be too awestruck to say anything if I were to meet them today. I'd be so thrilled. Right. Val, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Thanks for being a guest. And the things that you're doing are fabulous. You're making such a contribution to um, the recovery field and helping recovering people. And thank you for sharing all this information with us. And thanks for the study you're doing. And um, I'm certainly looking forward, and as I know my listeners are, to seeing the results when you get them out. Oh, thank you, Anne. It's been my pleasure. Well, I hope that uh, all of your our listeners have enjoyed it. I know that you have. And check on our Facebook page later tonight or tomorrow, and you'll see those postings on there about the books you can read and join us next week when our topic is going to be renew your spirit the gift of a 12-step retreat center and we're going to be hearing from jesse sell who's the director of the renewal center of the south which is a 12-step retreat center in north carolina be blessed and have a wonderful week and know that you're in my prayers god bless bye-bye Thank you for tuning in to Spirit of Recovery with Rev. Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central, 2 p.m. Pacific for down-to-earth ideas on keeping spirituality in the heart of your recovery. Spirit of Recovery, only on Unity FM, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry in Olympia, Washington, committed to bringing light to the soul online at www.soulmatters-spiritworks.org. You have a good life and are grateful for it. But what if you stretched beyond good and shifted to amazing? Join Rev. Temple Hayes, Senior Minister of the First Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an amazing life. Transcend the need for acceptance of others and be an example of living the truth. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an amazing life right now? Learn how each week on From Good to Amazing, Mondays at 4 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.